Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. I thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to be a supporter of this podcast and uh, if this is of benefit to you, please go to patreon.com slash timothyyap and we'll be... Uh, We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have your support. It's patreon.com slash timothyyap. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you and God bless you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence to hear again your holy words. Father, as we pause our hearts and our attention before you, we pray that you will still our hearts we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you may take over these next few moments. Grant to us a desire for your word to be nourished, to be humble, to learn. And Father, to let your spirit take control of our lives. Father, we surrender again to your spirit. May your spirit do its work, his work in our lives. And may you help us to draw us to Jesus. So may our next few moments be consecrated to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Starting on December 13, 1937, and spanning over a period of about six weeks, Japanese soldiers marched into the city of Nanjing in China. At the time, Nanjing was the capital of China. One third of the city was burned down by arson, 300,000 Chinese were being killed, and they, the Japanese gang raped at least 20,000 women before killing them. They did not even spare the children. They cut open the children, they butchered them, they raped them and mutilated them. No one was spared. And this period of time sometimes is sometimes called the Rape of Nanjing. And months before the city fell to the Japanese, there were foreigners, at least 20,000 foreigners in the city. But before the Japanese came in, most of them fled. There were only a small handful left in the city. And one of those foreigners that was left behind the city of Nanjing was a man, a German man called John Rabe. Because the Japanese and the Germans were kind of allies during this time, the Japanese feared and respected John Rabe. And because John Rabe had some connection with Hitler, the, Japan, the Japanese dare not defile John Rabe. But John Rabe was a good man, was a missionary. And he tried his best to save these Chinese uh, by bringing them to what he called a safety zone. John Rabe was able to block out a piece of land in the city of Nanjing. It was not fortified, it was just a piece of land surrounded by roads on all four sides. But he calls this the safety zone. And he came to an agreement with the Japanese by saying to the Japanese, you can destroy the entire city all you want, but this piece of land is my safety zone. You can't come in, you can't molest anyone that's in this safety zone. So in this block of land, the John Rabe took care of as many Chinese as possible as the city went into havoc. And naturally, thousands and thousands of Chinese flocked to this safety zone. And due to the size of the people, John Rabe could not protect everyone. 
So from time to time, the Japanese will still break into the safety zone and like wolves, they will grab hold of the women, they will grab hold of men and kill them. And every time Jara Bay were to leave the safety zone, the Japanese would come in like, like wolves devouring the Chinese. Though John Rabe could help as many Chinese as possible, still many of them were massacred, raped by the Japanese. And there were so many that was being raped and massacred by the Japanese that by the end of the six weeks, they even destroyed almost all of the safety zone too. After the rape of Nanjing was over, John Rabe returned back to Germany. And he fell into bad times. He and his wife became so poor that they couldn't put food on their own table. So when the Chinese in Nanjing heard about this, they collected money and they sent money back to him. And every month they would send him a parcel of food so that John Rabay and his wife could sustain themselves. And they sent it every month until John Rabay died. John Rabay wanted to stand by the Chinese. He had this great heart to protect the Chinese from the attack, from the massacre, from the rape of the Japanese. But he couldn't do it. He was helpless at times. And there were still many Chinese under his care that were being destroyed by the Chinese, by the Japanese. John Rabay wanted to be a hero. And though he was a hero, he wasn't the perfect hero. We expect our parents to be our hero, to be the ones that would stand by us. But many of us do have parents that don't lift up to those words. They don't really stand by us. We want our best friends to be there for us when we lose our jobs, only to find that they avoid our phone calls because they're afraid that we would borrow money from them. We hope our bosses will stand by us after we put in all the hours of extra work into our portfolios and the projects that we have to handle. But when it comes time to retrench the workers, our bosses listen to the office gossip more than our own reports that we have done. We've often been let down by people, people who are supposed to be our help, people who are supposed to be the ones that were supposed to be our heroes. And then we feel that they don't stand by us. This is what is happening here in Ezra chapter 10. As we come to the end of the book of Ezra, we come into a very sad and a very dark period as the book moves into. In chapter 9, we have already seen how many of the returned Jews, as they returned to Jerusalem, have become fallen into sin. They began to intermarry with the people of the land. And I've argued from previous sermons that if you consider the context of Ezra well, especially from chapter 4, you will realize that the reason why Ezra and the leaders opposed to these marriages was not because these people were just foreigners, not because of their uh, ethnicity, but rather they were marrying the people of the land, and the people of the land were actually very rebellious and opposed to the work of God. So the people have sinned. They have intermarried with the people who have no fear of God. But here in chapter 10, the, t the, the camera shift from the people now to the leaders. What 
are Ezra and the leaders supposed to do in the sight of this mast? And this is what Ezra chapter 10 is about. If you were a leader during this time, what are you going to do when there is sin all around? We will want our leaders to stand by the truth. We will want the leaders to stand by the people. To do what's right. But unfortunately, Ezra chapter 10 doesn't go that way. Let's dig into the text. If you look at Ezra chapter 10, if your Bibles turn on to Ezra chapter 10 or turn to Ezra chapter 10. And let's look into the text. Ezra chapter 10 verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekaniah, Shanashiel, one of the descendants of Alam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all the women and their children in accordance to the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. Here despite Ezra's prayer and confession, no action comes from Ezra himself. Rather, the first person to speak up in the midst of all this mess, all this sin that's going on with the people marrying uh, the women of the land, the first person to speak up is Shekinah. Shekinah. Uh, and he uses expressions that we have been unfaithful. So Shekinah was not just only speaking for himself. He was speaking as a representative for the community. And as a representative, he's saying, let's make a covenant. Let's make a covenant so that we will send away all the women that have intermarried, all the foreign women that have intermarried with our men. And let's send them away together with their children. Let's chase them out of the city of Jerusalem. To many of us, um, this doesn't sound very harsh. But in the ancient world, this is a death sentence. Because no one, if these women and the children leave, they will not be able to find work for themselves. No one will take them in. They will be either wandering in the wilderness until they die, or they will be sold into prostitution. So this is a matter of life and death. What the men was, what this Shekinah guy was saying is that, let these women and their children die. And now Ezra, amazingly, has nothing to add, and he was just following around. So verse 5 we read, So Ezra rose up and put the leading priest and the Levites and all Israel under oath to do what has been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went into the room of Jehohanah, son of Elisha. So instead of speaking up, and uh, Ezra just simply went along, and he even left the room, did Ezra just physically leave the temple precincts or did he also mentally checked out? And Ezra appears one more time in the, in the book in, at verse 10. 
Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord your God and our ancestors and do His will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. All Ezra could do is just repeat Shechaniah, what Shechaniah said. And notice in verse 10, the narrator tells us, gives the added information that Ezra is the priest. This is the first time since chapter 7 that Ezra is referred to the priest. As priest, Ezra should pray, intercede for these women, intercede for these young children, and, and, and not drive them to their own graves. But all Ezra did was he just kept quiet and went along. We expect the leaders to stand by the people, but all they could do was to let the women be sentenced to death with their children. And the whole assembly, verse 13, responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it's the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot take care of itself in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Immediately after the vouch of support, we are told that it was the rainy season. And the many people who were there waiting to hear the verdict of what to do with these foreign women and their children were complaining. They were complaining because it was raining. Here, the livelihood of these women and their children are at stake, and the people who were supposed to stand by these women were more concerned about the rain, about getting wet, than the livelihood of these women. This is not the first time we read of the rain. At the start of the chapter, we are told that all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. The Hebrew word for distressed here is best translated, they were trembling. The verse is supposed to leave, leave the, the reader perplexed. Are the people trembling because of the gravity of the situation, because of the sin of the people, that now they have to come to a solution? Or are they trembling because of the torrential downpour, because of the rain? The people were more concerned about getting wet and trembling from the cold than the livelihood of these women. And Ezra was supposed to be the priest, was supposed to intercede to God on behalf of these women and children. And all he could do was to follow what Shekaniah had to say. Why? Because as human beings, we are actually quite merciless. We are very good in pinpointing faults, but we're not very good with grace and mercy. There once was a teacher who came into a classroom full of students. Without saying a word, the teacher wrote a few lines on the board. First, she wrote, 1 plus 1 equals 2. And the second line she writes is, 4 plus 5 equals 9. And the last line she writes is, 5 plus 5 equals 11. Immediately, one student raised her hand and said, Excuse me, miss. Of all the three, uh, the, the third uh, mathematical uh, expression is wrong. 5 plus 5 is not 11. 5 plus 5 is 10. The teacher smiled and said, 
you have pointed out what was incorrect on the board, but the first and second calculations are correct. How come you only pointed out what's wrong and not what's right? We are very quick to point out people's sins. And this is what Azra and the community are doing. They're very quick to point out people's sins and ready to sentence them to death. But we are not quick on pointing out people's good points, are we? When I was teaching in Florida State, every time at Florida State University, every time when I grade a paper, I would always make sure that when I put down my comments, I would uh, write at least, if I have to put down five things about a paper that students write, at least I'll put down three very positive encouragement to the students because I want our students to continue writing, to be proud of their work. So I'll at least put down three to four good things that the student has done well. And I would always try to help them improve by writing one or two constructive criticisms about the paper. And every time when a student comes to see me, 10 out of 10 times, they don't have a problem with the compliments. It's always with the constructive criticisms that they have problems with. We are obsessed with sin. We can't get over sin. And we are very quick to point out the mistakes of others. And notice it's not just the men in the community who are willing to throw these women out into the wilderness and the children it's also the Jewish women and the children who are also part of this group. If you look very carefully at what we have just read, you will notice at verse 1 that among the assembly of people that made this decision to throw the women out, to throw the, 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 the children out, it's not made just by the men. But verse 1 tells us it was made by a, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, even the women and the children who should be apathetic towards the foreign women and children, but they were not. Remember in Ezra chapter 7, when Ezra and the Jewish people were returning to Jerusalem from Babylon, Ezra in his prayer as they were coming back, Ezra was so worried because he was being so worried that they would be attacked on the way back to Jerusalem. So what did Ezra do? He called a fast and he prayed. Why did he pray? Why did he fast? Ezra's prayer reveals that they were feeling really very vulnerable because there were women, there were children and the elderly in the caravan. And he was very afraid that they would be robbed. And these women knew firsthand what it means to travel through the dangerous wilderness. But when it comes time for those foreign women to be judged, they showed no mercy. So what can we learn from this passage? Difficult passage. Two things. Sin is weighty and sin deserves death. On one hand, what Ezra and the community has been suggesting is not wrong. Sin deserves death. They, the, these women, on one hand, deserves to be ostracized. Sin is weighty. But on the other hand, this passage also teaches us that there is a driving need for mercy. That there is a mercy. 
And there is a little hope in this passage that points towards the gospel. Look with me at verse 15. Although the people were not really into it, they were more concerned the rain, Ezra didn't really care, he didn't really intercede for the people, there was a small sliver of hope. Verse 15, Only Jonathan, son of Ashiel, and Jezaliah, son of Tigvaye, supported by Mashulam and uh, Shabaltai, the Levite, opposed this. Out of all the crowds of people, even the women, even the children, there were a few men, a few good men in the crowd who felt that there was something wrong with the whole picture. There is a desperate cry for mercy. There is a desperate cry for a judge who would come in and show mercy and atone for these sins so that the innocent little children will not have to die in the wilderness. There is a longing for a saviour. Teachers will let us down. Parents will not stand by us all the time. Our friends may leave us in the dirt when our times are tough. People may just shunt you out and pretend that you don't exist and they will not answer your emails. They, they will not try to respond. They will think that there is something wrong with their phone just to avoid you when you are down. What is needed? We need a Savior who will stand by us. And the book of Ezra ends with that cry for the gospel. The cry for Jesus who will stand by us, who will not ignore our emails, who will not try to pretend that he's half blind, who will not be more concerned about the rain than our welfare, who will be apathetic because he knows the pain of going through a wilderness. We need a Savior to stand by us. Without the cross, human beings are merciless. Without the cross, human beings are selfish. Yes, they will only care for their own well-being. They will only care about the coal rather than lives of the women and the children. Without Christ, we will only think about ourselves and we will not be generous when we see people in need. We need a Christ who will intercede for us and change us. When his parents died, Matt dropped out of school. He became a, dish to wa uh, a dishwasher, a human dishwasher, washing dishes in a restaurant. However, one day he was picked up by a ship captain and began working as a cabin boy on a huge, large ship. And over the years, Matt struck a friendship with the ship's captain by the name of Captain Peary. Matt and Captain Peary had a dream. They both dreamt about climbing up the most northern part of the world. And amidst many failures and many attempts to go up but failed, in 1908, 
uh, Matt and Captain Peary decided to venture together. The two managed to slot through the, the trails of ice fields. They crossed the dangerous uh, crevices. They conquered through the towering glaciers. And they did all of that. They, they faced the howling winds, the endless nights, and the temperature dropping many, many, many degrees below zero. And they finally reached their destination. They finally reached the northernmost part of the, of the planet. But Captain Peary was exhausted. But man continued on. And he became the first man to stand at the North Pole. And there he stuck a flag at the North Pole, the most northern part of the entire globe. And then he went back to the captain to get the captain. But Captain Peary was livid. He wanted to be the first person to reach the pinnacle position. He wanted to be the one to place in the flag. So Captain Peary refused to talk to Matt. And Matt's heart was broken. After all these years of friendship, after making history, Captain Peary decided to end his friendship with Matt and decided to end it there that he will no longer stand by Matt. And two of them returned home. They were given a hero's welcome. Proud Americans fetted Captain Peary with parades, with awards, with receptions, applauding him for being the first man to stand up at the North Pole and putting a flag there. Nobody noticed Matt. Though Matthew Hansen was the first person to step onto the, most, on, onto the North Pole and place the flag there. Why? Because Matthew Hansen was black. And he came from a family of slaves. Can you imagine the injustice? Matt, Matthew Hansen was the one who placed the flag there at the North Pole. But he was ignored. Just because he was black and came from a slave family. Can you feel the anger? Can you feel the need for a judge who is fair and to bring out the truth? If you feel the injustice, you have understood Ezra chapter 10. It's supposed to leave us, leave us furious because there needs to be a savior who will speak up once and for all for the women who will speak up for the children rather than just toss them aside and let them die in the wilderness. We need a Savior who will atone for sin, take up our sins and make us righteous in the sight of God. And this is why we have Jesus because the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only are we forgiven, not only are we saved, but we become in God's eyes imputed with the righteousness of God. Ezra is supposed to leave us wanting, longing for someone who will stand by us. Father, we come into your presence this morning and lay our hearts before you. 
because we have felt the pain too. Like Matthew Hansen, like the women and the children in Ezra chapter 10. When we long for somebody who will stand by us. Somebody who will intercede for us, who will speak on our behalf, who will give us a second chance, who will want the truth to be out rather than lies. We will want somebody to be there even when it's difficult and even when the world frowns. But we know that you have. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have stood by us even through the most difficult times. You are the great high priest who prays on our behalf before the Father. You're not like Ezra who was the priest but said nothing but, and just went with the crowd and ignored the people. Just like how people ignore us by ignoring our emails, ignoring our telephone calls when we're in difficult times. But you stand by us. You read every email that we write. You respond with care and with diligence and with heart. We thank you that you stand by us. You made standing by us a reality. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. Not only did he come to save us, but he made us righteous before God. So Father, we come before you this morning and say thank you. May your Spirit change us so that we too may be like Jesus, who will stand by our friends, who will stand by our loved ones, who will stand by our relatives, who will stand by our children, who will stand by our parents, who will stand by our brothers, our sisters, in the most difficult times. And shower them with our attention that we will not be more concerned about trivia things like the rain but we'll be concerned for their well-being that we'll be generous with our gifts not just with empty words or not just with faint ignorance but we will respond unless Jesus is our judge and unless this judge changes us we will be like the people of this world merciless and uncaring so lord jesus change us let us be like you father thank you god is speaking to us right now let's spend a few moments let's pause Allow Him to soften our hearts. Father, make us like Jesus. Help us to truly care for those who are hurting. Help us not to love our monies, our reputations, our perceptions, what others think more than those that you have placed in our care. For those of us who are struggling, Father, I pray that you will give us an assurance again through the power of your cross, of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for being our judge, faithful and true. In his name we pray. Amen.